Hello there, welcome along to the podcast. I'm recording this on Thursday, April the 23rd, St. George's Day in England, the patron saint of the country. The sun's belting down. I'm just recording this introduction actually in my garden, which is uh, pretty amazing. So if there's any background noise, there's a few sirens around, uh, hopefully not coronavirus related, um, but hopefully some tweeting birds you can hear there, blue skies, sun's out. Um, been a gorgeous April, obviously, it's set against the surreality of the situation regarding the coronavirus lockdown we're into a month i believe in the uk of a lockdown now uh the podcast sport and life sponsored by bang and olufsen of cheltenham and serene av who are specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations jason briggs and his team not at their uh, beautiful location in the heart of montpellier in cheltenham in the courtyard at the moment obviously working remotely from home but very much available through the Bang Olufsen website, email, phone numbers, so on and so forth for consultations about your home entertainment system. Serene AV is kind of their sister company uh, alongside Bang Olufsen. They're a franchise of Bang Olufsen. But um, yeah, get in touch with those guys if you have any concerns. or want to buy any home entertainment at the moment. We're all kind of, I guess, spending more time at home generally with we're looking for entertainment and also trying to be productive. On that note, I'm going to speak to Tris Dixon, boxing author, boxing journalist soon, who is a uh, very productive guy in terms of uh, being a, a young boxing news editor, the most prestigious, arguably, magazine for boxing in the world at the age of 30. He's written a series of books, including one called The Road to Nowhere, which, again, is more sobering content for me as a guy who's covered boxing myself as a presenter, reporter, um, just tr- traversing the United States of America back in the early 2000s at a time when I was actually coaching football out there. So that resonated with me, that kind of thrill of being a young man. He's a very similar age to me, just a couple of years older. And... It um, resonated, but there's a kind of a, a sort of sorrowful undertone to the book because it's Tris meeting sort of legends of the game who perhaps weren't high profile like Muhammad Ali and Joe Frozier, but of similar eras to those guys and um, had a lot of uh, cognitive decline, a lot of trauma, um, depression. And he's got a forthcoming book out next year called Damage, which outlines that. And I think for those of us who cover the sport, Tris has actually boxed himself, but for me, there's a conflict inherent to it because of the dangers it brings to those participants if you get paid to report on it to be there the guys who get between the ropes who don't often make that much money there's only a, a small percentage that that become millionaires or even become solvent really and financially established um, but they put their lives on the risk not only their lives on that night which tris says boxers kind of accept but also the damage that can affect their lives through brain damage through chronic traumatic encephalopathy cte so it's it's kind of sobering it's a really poignant piece and it's an excitement piece as well because of his being a young journalist going around the states the road to nowhere i finished it last night 300 plus pages great book been my main read during lockdown speak to him about that i wanted to point you in the direction as well of supplements uh my father is a micronutritionist and general practitioner doctor and we've taken through him cytoplan supplements for a good couple of decades a company based not far from where I am actually in Cheltenham, sat in my garden in a place called Welland outside Malvern, where we spent uh, formative years, like my teenage years, going to school up there. And he worked for the company helping design food-based supplements. So they're, they're digested light supplements. And one he recommends at the moment with immunity very much front and center in terms of how we respond to coronavirus, a supplement called Immunovite, I-M-M-U. N-O-V-Y-T-E, and the company is Cytoplan, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N. And if you go to Cytoplan's website and order supplements from there, I think there is a 10-day, two-week wait because they've had a massive rush on due to, of course, people's health concerns, similar to a friend of mine who runs uh, or is part of Pucker Organic Tea Company. I know that they've had a lot of 
requests for their herbal teas, particularly from people like Amazon and stuff like that. So quite interesting, there's a lot of health conscious people. But if you go to the Cytoplan website and you put in Draper 10, you will get a 10% deduction on any supplements you order. But Immunovite is the one in terms of uh, boosting immunity. He's particularly concerned about selenium, which you can buy selenium as a, as a separate yeast-based supplement there, which the body can consume because yeast, uh, selenium sorry, is quite low in UK soil. Anyway, I hope you're well. I hope you enjoy St George's Day. I'm not particularly jingoistic or patriotic. I think St George was actually um, uh, a Greek Greek chap, wasn't he? Um, St Patrick, of course, I think was English, went over to Ireland, is that right? Get confused by the history of the uh, the religious figures but anyway it's a gorgeous day and hopefully you're well and healthy and kind of coping with the the sort of surreality and the the health side of the coronavirus but also the the impact and the, the anxiety it's producing people concerned about the economy and so on and so forth but hopefully this will be a good boxing chat for you and uh, a good guy Tris. here we go ed hello Tris. how are you doing Hi, how are you doing mate I'm well, thank you. How's your How's your dog walk in the the blistering oh, sun? Nice. I love it, mate. Well, it's not not quite blistering, and I've got a woodland quite near me as well, so um, it's good because my dogs are brachiophallic; they're flat-nosed breeds, and they can't stand the heat. So we've either got to get them out early or late. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the subplots as well. It's been so strange the lockdown. I think normally the press would be reporting the incredible April weather. I can't remember a, a sunnier April than we've we've had. Yeah, it's been lovely, and and it's it, you know. As frustrating as that might be for people who can't get out, I mean, people with gardens and all the rest of it, I mean, it could have been a lot worse. Yes. Yeah, no, you've been coating it down all this time. Yeah, I thought if the virus had hit, you know, some sort of sort of kind of uh, conspiracy theories, not even conspiracy theories, but some predictions that maybe it, it actually hit the UK in January or December even. So I think if it had been that stage of a lockdown, it would be very different. I think it rained for about three months at that time. So it yeah, would have been, massively. It would have been pretty pretty bleak um but how you doing i finished road to nowhere last night the book oh did you brilliant stuff yeah yeah and it was it was interesting because we had a great conversation it's a real shame that it, it didn't work and i won't go as long this time i'll um i'll call you back if we if we do continue and you've got time but it was it was interesting because we talked about um the opportunities of, of boxing why people feel compelled to box and i always thought oh, maybe i should have boxed when i was a kid but didn't and we talked about perhaps that financial imperative that a lot of these guys have the cultural background but also it's interesting the big heavyweight towards the end of the book you meet in minnesota i believe jim Beatty. yes and he talks about needing boxing for self-esteem i think he just ended up being a six foot eight heavyweight but began as a welterweight as a kid and he um he was talking about self-esteem and, and self-belief that came through boxing i thought that was maybe what i kind of is something that comes across as well isn't it that, that on the positive side of boxing we talked about the damage and the I guess the collateral damage on a lot of these guys' lives, but there is that sense of some of these guys come from sort of damaged backgrounds and not the greatest uh, parenting that maybe they need that. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, you know, you go down all the cliched routes with this, but you know, you talk about respect for others, but you also talk about self-respect and you talk about discipline and those are key ingredients that make, make up any, any, well, I was going to say young man, but any man really. Mm. Um, and they build the foundation blocks of trust, loyalty, and respect. And you, it's hard to respect other people if you don't respect yourself. Um, and I think boxing is a massive part, you know, can play a massive, massive part because it gives you confidence. And it's not to walk, it's not to say you walk around thinking, oh, I could, I could have him in a fight. Or I could do this. <laughs> but it gives you an air of um, self-respect where you know you can look after yourself, where yeah. you, know you can look after other people if you have to. Uh, and I think that goes into other aspects of life, whether it's parenting 
or because you want to be able to look after those around you and those that you care for and those that, you, that and, and those that you respect too mm. and i think there's there's that that element to it as well and i think there's where and then obviously as i say you come down to the discipline side of it um and the routine that it gives a lot of fighters that stuff is is strange really because when but when fighters no longer fight when no longer when they that when they no longer box a lot of them do struggle with with lacking routine when mm. in actual fact it should actually have provided them a decent framework of routine for the previous years that they've been boxing yeah we talked about your boxing actually carrying over into crossfit but i often say when when young journalists aspiring journalists say to me what's the key and obviously there's so many different technological changes since I did my master's sort of 14, 15 years ago. But I say that the actual sport analogy and being a sports journalist is quite clear. It's that, that sense of practice, getting better at something, getting reps in. You know, I'm going back to trying to, to, to write. And obviously, I'm, I'm kind of uh, during the lockdown doing stuff for the Sky Sports website. And that for me is going back to where I started. But I have to kind of get practicing and get at that to try and get better at that. It's a different skill than broadcasting. And I know you've recently done more broadcasting with BT as well. You've got your podcast, Boxing Life Stories, which is a great insight into real digging into some of the stories and the characters and the, the realities of, of boxing. But I think that, that sporting analogy for me has been quite strong, I think, from playing sport. It, it does translate to other aspects. Is it that idea that if you practice and it's correct practice, you'll, you'll get better as long as you take feedback and, and well, are w- willing to reflect? You know, I think that's a really interesting point there. And, and, and one of the things that I can best compare that to is you, you talk about us being a similar age, and we are. Mm. My, my son is 13. He's 14 in June. And he's wow. obviously very much of the Instagram age. And he'll <laughs> look at someone doing an outrageous trick on Instagram and think, and they're fighting the garden. But if he can't do it, and I'm like, it takes hours to practice. And people, yeah. so many people see this instant success on social media and they think it's easy to replicate. And, you, you know, you look at the, and because his news feed is an Instagram feed, he'll see all the highlights of a Champions League match and, and all the rest of it. But he won't see the graft. He certainly won't see the training sessions. And obviously yeah. he won't watch the games these, play, these guys played as an under 10 or under 11, under 12 and so forth, all the way through to get to where they're at. And he mm. instantly thinks if he can't, you know, do 10 keepy uppies and volley in the top corner in off, <laughs> in off the postage stamp crossbar, then, you know, then, then he's failed. And it's very yeah. difficult because, you know, when we didn't have that stuff when we were kids, and, and it's not that long ago, um, no. you know, you literally had a ball and a garden and a goal, and that was it. Mm. Yeah, and even those, even those guys who, who are putting those videos on Instagram, they're potentially editing that as well, but it is the hours of craft. That's an interesting one, football as well, because I came up and played a little bit of semi-professional football before I went to university and played up to the seconds at Loughborough, but never got near making it as a professional, whether that was application or self-belief or just talent. There's a mixture of everything that goes into it. But football's an interesting one in the UK in particular, because for what, certainly in our generation, most people played it. It was a real lingua franca. And actually, when you think about the pros that get there, they were not, you know, even the people at the bottom end of the first of it, League One, League Two, are probably the best player in their town when they're coming through. They came from a small town. So it's, it's incredible the level you had to get to in certain sports just to to get any recognition is, is phenomenal. Um, but it's the thing that crossed my mind, Tris, in terms of similarities. We talked about it a little bit, but with the road to nowhere, you're going across the States in your early 20s. I was out there similar times coaching football in the summers. And then I did my master's in journalism in Ohio, which is, you know, you did a couple of big interviews and the book in, in Ohio. And I remember that the, the sort of infatuation with the United States I had at that time. I don't know how you felt about it. Like as I get older and a bit more, uh, 
sort of uh, world, I start thinking about safety nets and stuff like that. But there's so much excitement I found as a young man in the States because it seemed that there's a, that sense of liberty, whether it's real or, or, or imagined, but you can do stuff and meet people. And, do, and there's sort of an energy about it. I don't know if you found that at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I live in a very, I, I live where, where I am now and where I was brought up. I live in a small village in the New Forest. So obviously then mm. to be walking around, New York with a backpack <laughs> or seeing strip in, in Vegas and walking up and down for hours on end, having seen this stuff on TV and in films and all the rest of it. It's, you know, you just think, even though I was skint and broke, you still think that you've made it, you know, because you're somewhere yeah. so big. And so, you know, where everyone else would want to swap places with you, the fact that you're out there seeing these things and doing it. And even though, like I said, I was skint and I couldn't afford to eat and I was staying in dives and, sleeping in bus stations and all the rest of it i was still thinking wow this isn't too bad you know this isn't too shabby um yeah and it, it it's astonishing but again like you really... did, did you ever think about did you ever think about working there because you obviously for most of us i did a little bit of work there but i was covering high school sport and it wasn't my you know anyway expertise because it was it was basketball and american football but boxing is one that that crosses over, isn't it? One of the rare sports that the UK and US both almost love equally. Well, I never really had firm um, f- firm employment. So it was never really a thing in terms of green cards and visas and, and that mm. kind of stuff. So I never really had a job. I mean, in terms of employment over there, the only place that I really sort of gainfully made any money was either helping out around gyms, but mostly when I was in Catskill, I worked at Forlini's, which was an Italian American resort run by an old guy called Freddie Forlini, a wonderful chap. Um, who actually had a restaurant down in Manhattan and he had a he, they had this little resort where there was a swimming pool and and it was a lovely wow. place up in Catskill and obviously I went there to train with Kevin Rooney and do the whole Mike Tyson experience thing for months and for uh, Freddie let me stay in a little outhouse um, for, it, for 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 a peppercorn rent in exchange for me helping on the resort and that was they had a little bar there so it would be filling up the ice buckets it would be cutting the grass on the down mower <laughs> And so that that was really the only sort of um, employment I had out there. But it's funny you say about traveling and, and as you get older, because I remember, I'm not sure if I told you this, but um, in Atlantic City, where, where I lived, where it was very, very rough. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, going back there years later. I, back then, I was thinking I was quite footloose and fancy free <laughs> and quite fancy myself. And, and I was sort of 20, 21, 22. And you know, quite fearless, but only fearless with naivety, really. Yes, um, yeah. And after having my son in in 2006, I went back and I covered a frotch fight. I think it was the Glenn Johnson's fight in Atlantic City. And I thought, oh, do you know what? I'll just go and walk back from from the, from the boardwalk and go and see some old friends. And mm. and as I went back block by block, Atlantic City is a hellhole. And it gets really <laughs> rough to the point where you, by the time you're five or six blocks back from the boardwalk, you may as well be in Beirut. And, <laughs> and it was, and, and it, the difference I felt was so marked. It was incredible. I, so the same streets I roamed when I was a, a, yeah. know, a 20, 22 year old, and I didn't care. You know, now I'd had a son. I was walking these streets. And I was yeah, can imagine him, imagine them going. Yeah, that's what I think sometimes about. Yeah, and I was thinking, geez, I'm going to have to break into a run to get to this place, so I'm not going to make it. And even then, when I got back, I was even when I saw my friends, I was sort of there, hanging out in the ghetto, thinking, geez, this, you know, how am I going to get back? And it was mm. sort, of, sort of the thing where I'd sort of almost break into a run to try and get back to the hotel, thinking, geez, these streets aren't safe. But it's exactly the same place in the same poor areas 
where I felt comfortable before, where being becoming a dad and getting married and having some responsibilities, it was just completely different later on. Yeah, I remember going to, I had a girlfriend in, in Columbus, actually, Ohio. She had a, a pretty, um, she'd been adopted, but her adopted parents lived in a pretty rough neighborhood. And I remember going around there and hit gunshots and there'd be sort of windows broken and people were really polite and friendly around there. But it was, it was a reality of the situation. Actually, I think you know, I was 22, similar age. I think you were, I was a little bit fearless. And I remember, you know, we'd go out when I was coaching football, we'd be out at three in the morning and drinking, drinking sort of eating in Waffle Houses at three, four in the morning and, and trouble would kick off. And you only in retrospect think, wow, it's, you know, it's a gun culture in the States. Someone could have had a gun in that situation, that scenario. And it's a different, different place at the time, whether it's the alcohol or just the, uh, the raw kind of enthusiasm of, of, of Asia. It's a, it's a, it is a raw country, isn't it? It's a lot of, compared to, the, to England, it's less structured, less regulated. I guess libertarians would say less of a nanny state, but it's, it's got that kind of, as you get older, that little bit kind of fear attached to it. And now we're seeing that sort of looser society, I guess, over there with a lot of people unemployed with coronavirus. And that may happen, obviously, globally, but it seems that straight away there's no safety net for a lot of people in the States. Yeah, and I think, you know, a couple of things astonished me traveling around the States is how, how little global travel a lot of people in America do. And that's mm. partly because they've got so many different states and things on their at their fingertips. Whereas they want to go to the mountains, they can go somewhere. If they want to do the Disney thing, they can go there. If they want to go to Hawaii or the islands or, or if they want to go down, yeah. they've all got places within the states. So a lot of the places where, and, and also a lot of the places, the states are so big, obviously New York State is bigger than the UK or certainly mm. bigger than England. You know, a lot of the people stay within their states as well. So I, I, was, <laughs> I was acquiring all these miles and these people couldn't believe it, but, <laughs> I remember going in the Greyhound bus terminal, the Port Authority bus terminal in New York, many, many times. You know, yeah. I must have been in there dozens of times over the years. And as you get, you know, as I get, got these month-long passes, you would go, you'd walk around the gates and you could see, like, signs for Chicago, for Los Angeles, for Las Vegas, Amazing. San Francisco, um, you know, for Phoenix, Arizona. Like, everything was at your fingertips. You could go anywhere. Like, and it's one of the things that really opened my eyes at a young age. And it's mm. one of the reasons why I want to go on a road trip with the kids it, is that there's literally no boundaries out there. And no. you can go wherever you want. You know, if you need these bus passes, you need a, a minimal amount of money to really to, to make ends meet. And and you can go and you can travel and, and no one's restricting you. You know, there's no one no. stopping you from doing any of this stuff. And it no. was a real eye opener for me that, to think that, you know, you know, having been on family holidays and having been on trips and all the rest of it there was there's nothing to stop you going out there getting a bus <laughs> spending a couple of days on a bus and just winding up somewhere completely yeah. different or even buying a car for a couple of thousand dollars probably and then you know kind of traverse there's no mot yeah with hindsight if i was yeah. doing it again that's probably the one thing i would have done differently but i was scared about driving over there so um yeah now obviously i drive over there all the time but i that, that's one thing i do differently for sure yeah i was lucky when i had a mitsubishi uh Gallant, which was a car that I bought for, I think, about $1,000, $2,000. And luckily, there was a guy in, in the town, Athens, Ohio, where I was. He'd been, he'd been posted in the, in the army to Oxfordshire, so not far from where I, I was growing up. And he was, he was keen to, to help. And he'd always sort me out with new transmissions and stuff for this thing. But I'd be sort of conking out in the middle of Ohio trying to cover high school <laughs> basketball and then driving, driving to New York in the middle of the night to see my uncle and stuff like that. And down sort of in uh, Virginia, West Virginia, these steep mountain passes with lorries big trucks coming up yeah, behind yeah. you at, I mean, at that, that miles said, you know we're talking about an area obviously where there was no sat nav so i can say i might have fancied it but 
you know, yeah. it, was, it would have been it would have been more difficult then than it is now. Now you plug in, obviously, you put your zip code in the states, and off you go. But back then, obviously, if you wanted to drive from New York to Los Angeles, that's a a trek, and b you yeah. know you need to know roughly where you're heading. Yeah, it's and it's funny because think about that actually. And I don't know whether it's the the American sort of hospitality or, or kind of openness or, or it's the boxing community. Cause I was thinking about the way you went about it, you know, with a, without a map, you just sort of rock up on a Greyhound bus and start calling people out the local yellow pages and stuff to try and track down boxers. And you had a few contacts sometimes, but it wasn't always concrete. It, 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 what was, what was that? Did, did you marvel at sometimes you managed to pull it off? Cause it's feasible. You could have just trekked around and, and not got many interviews. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, there was sometimes where I was lucky where I'd sort of, Go. I travel for sometimes a couple of days. I mean, one time I traveled to see Marvin Johnson in India, in Indianapolis, just on the on the off chance. Yeah, and I couldn't get him, couldn't find him. So off I went to Salt Lake City. Um, you know, it was luck of the draw stuff. And then there were other times where you know, went back and got him again, though, didn't you, Marvin Johnson? I did. Yeah, I went because he 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 the messages that I'd left for him previously, almost a year earlier. He remembered that this weird English guy had been around asking for him, and so so by the time I went back, he said, "You know, are you the strange guy that was that came calling, you know, a few months earlier?" And I was like, "Yeah, that's me." He said, "Well, I suppose I better entertain you now, hadn't I?" Um, you got you, you. It was a good story. That was a positive story because you got him reconnected with with boxing, and he seemed a bit soured by it. And I think he gone and had a career in law enforcement was he? I think something like that. Yeah. He'd, he'd he'd actually prospered compared to other boxers, but he didn't think well of his time as a boxer but that seemed to change during the course of your interaction and, and subsequent sort of events yeah that was so satisfying so marvin was one of the great light heavyweight champions in the 70s he was a three-time world champion when there was only two 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 belts the wbc and the wba and marvin wow. was a real tough nut and he fought all those guys so matthew saab mohammed um, victor galindez he fought who's who of the guys um eddie mustafa mohammed Dodged no one. He fought all the way through until I think it was 1987 when he fought Leslie Stewart and won the title for the third time. Anyway, it was, it was longer than he probably should have been. But yeah, he became a sheriff. And and when I met him, we sat down and I was saying, oh, you know, aren't you proud of your career? And he's like, well, it's come and gone now. And, and also <laughs> his dream was he wanted to make a million dollars and he never made a million dollars. And he sort of, there was at one point where he was close to getting the Sugar Ray Leonard fight when I think Donnie Lalonde got it instead. And so mm. that would have been his nest egg. And then I think it would have been mission accomplished. But because he didn't make a million dollars, he thought he was a failure. And mm. I said, you know, where's your, where, where are your championship belts? You know, people have them on their mantelpieces or on the walls. He's like, oh, they're up in my mum's attic somewhere. Wow. And I was like, you know, he'd just completely forgotten about it. Anyway, um, someone saw, so I wrote a piece on him for Boxing Digest at the time. And mm. someone read that and they said, oh, I want to do something for Matthew Saad Mohammed's induction in a Hall of Fame ceremony on the East Coast. Can you put me in touch with Marvin? I said, well, you know, Marvin doesn't want to do much, but I, I can certainly ask a question. And Marvin sort of reluctantly said, yeah, pass on my number. And they ended up reconnecting Matthew Saad Mohammed, Yaki Lopez, Eddie Mustafa and Marvin Johnson at a Hall of Fame. Great, great rival, rivals of the era, yeah. Yeah, at a Hall of Fame event on the East Coast. And that, for me, was one of my proudest achievements, I suppose, is getting those guys all reconnected. Because they're all, you know, Yaki's from Stockton, Eddie's in Vegas, Marvin's in mm. Indianapolis, and Matthew, who's no longer with us, was, was on the East Coast. And yeah, Matthew was a good, good friend of yours, wasn't it? That must have been a, the hard hit, I think. And is that that's something that heightens that sense of conflict with the sport, is it your relationship with him? 
Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, to to have spent a long time with Matthew and to see his his memory go and how he physically struggled and you know and and also how the sport abandoned him. You know, as you as you know from the road to nowhere, you know the the, the book starts with he and I taking a, a pretty hairy journey to Madison Square Garden to watch Hopkins fight mm. Trinidad. And, you know, Matthew driving, it just wasn't a great thing. I mean, how we managed to get there and back, I don't know. But <laughs> he obviously ends up sell, literally selling the shirt off his back in that place as well because he's so hard up. So, yeah, I mean, it's it, it, he was a poster boy for how boxing can, can ruin you physically, mentally and emotionally. Yeah, how, how many people do you think can make money out of the sport financially? Would you, if you're giving someone a chance out of uh, 100, what would it be? One. You won, I yeah. Yeah, I reckon. I mean, in terms of people who would have their house paid off, let's let's say that's the ballpark. One um, percent. Yeah, because even if you're even if you're prudent and frugal to a certain extent and try and save, the, the reality is when you cut down the purses as some of the guys did in the book with you, that everything has. You have a manager fee, you have a training fee, and you're potentially only fighting two or three times a year anyway. So the actual net of what you're getting is is often a lot less than what's in the papers. Yeah, cut man, tax man, you know, the whole lot, you know, fees, lawyers, um, as you say, promoter, manager, um, training camp fees. Um, you know, I think, I reckon 1% probably get their houses paid for by the end of it. Um, mm. And then obviously, you know, then they've still got to find what they're going to do with the rest of their lives with the remaining 40 odd years. Yeah, it was, it was interesting because we're obviously talking about this in all the contexts of all the sports, both at work at Sky Sports News and I've been on the phone to, to several boxers doing features. And actually, you put me in touch indirectly. I've managed to get hold of Daniel Dubois this week, who's the British heavyweight champion challenging or challenging for the vacant title, the European level with Joe Joyce. That's been rescheduled for July the 11th, whether that will happen or not. But he's living at home with his, his dad and I think he's got less commitments. But you do worry at this time in particular, the freelance nature of boxing, so I guess, Tris, with each passing day, we're just not sure how long it's going to be until until we can have boxing back with with people there and with the emergency services there, which are, are vital. Yeah, I think one of the, I mean, I, first thing first, first, if it's not safe to do it in terms of you, you can't take the doctors away from where they need to be at the moment, which is on the front line with the NHS. Um, mm. So I think that's probably the, the most important thing. But second, I think probably boxing is one of the few plates, few things that probably would work behind closed doors. Um, yeah, you know, because it is so raw and it is about one person beating the other, and there is no sort of playing to the crowd. There's no real sort of acting involved. It is, and and you know, sometimes it's only a, a small percentage of of boxing events are paid to pa- are played to packed houses anyway. Um, so I think there are some fights, probably up to European level, or maybe even some world world level fights that could do could could do well behind closed doors, and then we'll do good viewing figures as well. Um, yeah, because especially at the moment, yeah, such think, a lack of live sport. Yeah, um, but I mean, in terms of it coming back, I just I just can't see how quickly it's going to be back. Certainly in terms of in the arenas and so forth. Um, mm. I just don't know. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. We, we were talking for people who listen to the podcast because I obviously hosted the, the Skybox podcast for a while. I've got a lot of people, not a lot of people, but some of my uh, my small but determined band of listeners. They do follow me from, from my boxing days and uh, on the podcast, and I, I know that they're they're obviously interested in someone like yours analysis of the situation. And what was interesting in our failed record was that you said 
the, some of the, the fanfare around boxing and the euphoria about the so-called sort of rude health of the sport was maybe slightly misplaced. And I was speaking to Daniel Dubois this week and with Sky's angle, obviously we've got a lot of crossover between football fans and, and boxing fans. So it tends to be general sports fans and they tend to like heavyweight stories. So it's all Tyson Fury, Joshua, or then you've got this crop coming up beneath them like Joe Joyce and, and Dubois and people like that. But you were saying that you think beyond that sort of sub- bubbling summit of heavyweight, scenes globally maybe Canelo aside that there's not a huge necessarily interest in boxing maybe not as big as we're we're told yeah I don't think the depth is there at all um you know I think of certainly when you look at some booming periods of 2000 and sort of seven when there was Mayweather and Pacquiao and De La Hoya was passing the baton um and then we had um obviously it was booming in this country of Ricky Hatton and Joe Calzaghe and David Hay was coming on the scene and Frotch was starting to make a noise. Um, mm. I, I do think that there was more depth back then. I think, you know, if, 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 you, take, if you take Joshua Fury and Wilder out of the public consciousness right now, I think they're going to be struggling to, to, to reel off names like Lomachenko, Canelo, um, mm. Spence, Crawford and so forth, and Usyk. Um, I do. I just, you know, I just don't think that the, I don't think the depth and knowledge in, in boxing is there. Um, you know, yeah. and I'm, and I don't like to categorise this, but obviously there is this hardcore casual thing that goes into, <laughs> into into boxing fans, and I just don't think the casual fans have the interest in the people that they no. that they don't really know about until a big fight comes along. Do you think that's helpful? That sort of divide in boxing, where it's effectively boxing is in its core, you say a minority sport, but that sort of cynicism around quote unquote casuals because. I suppose it's the casuals of football that have made it this this kind of global force and and huge product. Well, not not really, because I don't think the casuals know that they're casual fans or that they know that no. the hardcores exist. It's probably only only the hardcores <laughs> that have a problem with the casuals. Um, yeah. I mean, it, and and even then, you know, I don't I don't really get what the problem is. I will label myself as a as a casual football fan. I'm a Saints fan, and and I watch the the national team, and I watch the higher profile Champions League fa- for, um, games. I mean, I guess that does make me a casual, but it, it, does, it wouldn't insult me if anyone calls me a casual fan because I don't have no. that, that, you know, encyclopedic knowledge of, of football as it is today. Maybe if you tested me on Saint, uh, Saints players in the 1990s, I might be able to help <laughs> to do some, <laughs> do some damage in, in that Fra- Fra- mind Fra- Franny Benali. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Franny and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, Jim Magilton. It's, um, it's interesting because I was talking to John Palmer, who's a local journalist uh, here, and he's also a lecturer at the University of Gloucestershire. He writes on the local clubs, so Gloucester Rugby, Cheltenham Town Football Club. And we were talking about dangers or the tricky future now with the recession. And, and you and I, pretty early on in our, our careers, would have navigated the recession of 2008 and the subprime mortgage and all, all that kind of collapse. And he was sort of expressing concern, I suppose, for his, his students, which there's still a lot of journalism students out there. We were sort of debating... The, the, the industry, particularly boxing media, of, of people kind of being able to self-publish can go out there and create content now. Um, but we were saying that it doesn't harm to, to go through the gatekeeper process because you obviously have gone two ways, haven't you? You've come through the boxing news ranks, you've edited the magazine, you've gone down to BT Sport where someone has to commission you for the work, but you also started your own podcast as well. Do you think it, it, it kind of, I guess, helps us to, to go through some sort of selection process or, or training process formally? Yeah, well, I mean, I did my degree in journalism in Falmouth um, down in Cornwall from 97 to 2000. Um, and then, obviously, I travelled around the States trying to get a break in boxing from really 2000 to 2004. 
And then it was the yeah. freelance work I did from there that got me a foot in the door at the Hampshire Chronicle as a, as a news reporter. Um, and I was a sensible journalist at, at the Hampshire Chronicle for a couple of years. And then I became the editor of the, the Forest Journal. And then I went all the way back to the bottom job at Boxing News where I became a, an editorial assistant. So I'd gone from running a newspaper <laughs> to being basically, I was never a tea boy, but the bottom of the food chain at Boxing News because I wanted the job. And yes. I, I worked my way up at Boxing News, became a web editor, a senior writer, and then the editor within three or four years. Um, so I sort of, I've, I've done everything sort of by the book in the old school way. I think the thing is, what you're getting at in terms of new media and, and the different approaches you can get is there is an opportunity out there for everyone to create a niche because not mm. all the bases are being covered, but too many people try to do the same thing. And, you know, I remember uh, as editor of Boxing News, people pitching me ideas at the time. And it was like, who would win between Mayweather and Pacquiao? Is Joshua the next <laughs> big thing? And it's like, oh, geez, you know, like, yeah seriously yeah. like there's got to be more to write about than this and obviously my yeah. niche that i created back in the day was finding all these old guys that no one had found and i created mm. the niche and you know and i've i've kind of done that now with the long form boxing podcast that there was no there was none of them out there previously and so i've sort of gone out there and created something different that that wasn't out there and i think yeah. people have the opportunity to come up with something different but what they generally see is they see something successful and they try to copy it yeah yeah i think exactly. that's the problem because I, we don't need all this you know no. if someone does something well <laughs> fine <to laughs> off your hat say well done and go and find your own niche yeah and i think my niche has almost been completely random with this podcast it's more of a, a kind of um a labor of love but i started a podcast at absolute radio and then did the skyboxing one from 2013 14 to just for 2017 that was an internal kind of contractual thing that I couldn't really continue that while working at Sky Sports News which has been a big miss which is why partly I started this I love I love the format I dare say your podcast I listen to it's probably something that you honed in terms of your writing books in terms of long form interviews it's very comparable I'd imagine to that but what's interesting there when you talk about the, the Joshua Pacquiao ideas because this is a, a a kind of complexity of modern media isn't it with the, the profile aspect of it like you know we, we live in a world where Sky Sports was reigning supreme as a sports broadcaster 20 years ago, but now Anthony Joshua on his Instagram account can get more views than, than any television channel in the UK. So it's, it's changing in that popularity and that kind of hits culture affects it a little bit, doesn't it? And I sometimes see this with journalists and you came up the traditional route as I did. And I got schooled on impartiality and, and not being passionately involved. And I think personally, I try and be respectful, particularly with boxers because I've never boxed to anyone who gets within those ropes. But I see a lot of judgment online, a lot of opinion castigating fighters for cat being cowards or ducking people from quote unquote new media journalists do you do you see that because there seems to be a, a real clamor for attention which is difficult because we live in this world where you want more listens for your podcast and you want as boxing news editor more people to read the magazine but you want to kind of retain an integrity as well yeah and i think you know i'm quite big on that in the sense that i am independent i am quite a formal journalist you know i mentioned that sort of old school upbringing that i had in, mm. in the trade and that doesn't lend me to probably I'm probably not as successful as I should be because I don't shout <laughs> about the stuff that I do or have done really um, yeah I obviously try it's... to inform my listeners or audience if you will whatever you want to call it um, about what I've done and where they can find it but I'm not one to either like beg for followers or to um, you know to ram stuff down people's throats um, I'm even wary of retweeting praise. Like I just, it just doesn't sit right with me, even if, even that, if that's a way of 
sort of trying to up your listeners and, and viewers yeah. and stuff. Um, I think it's and, a slow burn that way, though, isn't it? But I think it probably has a kind of more authentic core to it to a certain extent. If you do that, you know, you get the people who do follow you tend to appreciate that you offer some solidity and, and sort of, um, I guess, uh, consistency. Yeah, but I think, you know, I think it, it probably then takes me a couple of years to get somewhere where someone shouting, them, shouting about themselves from the rooftops probably get within a year. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it puts everything on the go slow, but I would much rather have that a, a decent reputation and be known for putting out quality than being a big mouth who can just, you know, draw people around in a circle to, to see what's going on. Yeah. Um, you're, also in great, you're also in great shape too. You could do more topless pictures and probably get a personal training kind of Instagram <laughs> account through that, couldn't you? It's bizarre. It's a bizarre world, that kind of, that divide between. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, between, no, between reality and perception sometimes online is tricky. Yeah, I mean, one thing about that is in, t- in terms of being in shape, I always did say that I would never be in the sport and be in it or, or covering the sport and be able to slate people for doing something I wouldn't do myself. So I've seen yeah. a lot of people over the years say, oh, I can't believe so-and-so's missed weight. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, when they when they might might weigh three or four hundred pounds themselves, <laughs> I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't write about someone in such disparaging way, but also I wouldn't do it in a way you know if if i wasn't looking after myself too and that's just me mm. like that, that's yeah, my yeah. Personal, personal no i think sports point. sports broadcasting i always thought the sports broadcasters in particular should always look like they potentially did play sport or could play sports to a certain extent you know i think that's yeah i think that... that's part of the part of the image and part of the packaging i do mm. um yeah i think that's right and for me i think i think you know in terms of the fighters that contact me on social media whether you know whether, whether i put up a run that i've done or, or some some lifting that i've done or whatever um fighters do talk about it you know if i if i'm then on a shoot say for bt sport i'm doing a podcast one of the first first things they'll talk about is what training i'm doing and and all the rest of it and it's, it is it's it's a common ground but also people are interested by the fact that you sacrifice and the fact that you work hard and that you're disciplined too and, yeah and that's that's a common bond that you know otherwise isn't forged Mm. No, that's a very good point actually i think the fact you've, you've obviously got a, a sort of um a grounding in boxing which i think resonates with the book that people appreciate that and often they're trying to tra- trying to train you i think as a young a young cruiserweight at the time they're trying to get involved with that but it's an interesting parallel with boxing isn't it this media aspect of, of do you kind of re- retain a detachment and a composure as a journalist or do you write a lot of opinionated stuff or write you know a lot of football journal- quote-unquote journalists who follow clubs just write sort of opinionated stuff about manchester united and then garner a big following because there's a lot of Manchester United fans who want to sort of throw their two pence in. But I think effectively you are just a sort of amplified fan when you, when you do that. Um, and I wondered with boxing, there's parallels because we often, I'm sure you've come across great, highly talented boxers, even at the grassroots level who then don't germinate into a, a high profile career because it is effectively uh, very similar to the, the media culture of attention seeking, isn't it? Boxing, there's that element to it, the trash talking element, the kind of, sometimes unsavory behavior that, that that translates into just making people realize who you are that's a difficult one do you see, do you see similarities there with the, the media and boxing um yeah i mean there's certain personalities you know i think personalities in boxing they, they've they're historically what have sold the fights mm. um you know you, you talk about the names and the personalities and people that are out there generally the people that know how to I've just heard you when you think of the great characters, okay. When you think of your Ali's, your Eubanks, your mm. Ben's, um, you look at the success story, your Ricky Hatton's, these guys know that the, the, the public are drawn to them in one way or another. 
And it's those mm. guys that form an opinion. And May, Floyd Mayweather used to call it relevance. And he said, you know, you guys can hate me or you can love me, but as long as you have an opinion, it's cool. <laughs> and, and, you know, and because and, that makes him relevant. Yeah, there has to be a dollop of authenticity, doesn't there? I think in those guys you mentioned, they, they're not the same. They're not trying to rep, like copy each other, like you mentioned before, with the sort of media aspect of it. There is something unique to those guys' characters. They're sort of like a, a, a humorous, sort of everyday kind of guy, melancholy a little bit to Ricky Hatton, and there was the sort of bravado of Ali that seemed to be sincere. There was, a, there, there was something that was unique to them, wasn't there? Yeah, and I think you know, and in terms of the Floyd thing, you know, and you, you know, I mentioned Naz and Chris Eubank. You know, plenty of those people were tuning in to watch these guys, putting huge ratings through the roof to watch these guys lose as well. And I mean, that's not a bad thing. You know, as long as you as mm. long as you're making the money and you're drawing the money, then then that's not a bad thing. So whether they love you or, or hate you, yeah, perfectly relevant because because you're you're in the spotlight. And, you know, I'm sure Chris Eubank Jr. sees that now. You mm. know, I think that's the, you know, he he plays the role where I actually, I like Chris Eubank, you know, I've had him on the podcast relatively recently and enjoy his company. He's got a bright guy, isn't he, seems. Yeah, he's got a lot to say for himself and, he, and he's interesting. But the way he acts, he acts arrogant. He looks arrogant. He is aloof. He, he does have a lot of money or he acts like he's got a lot of money and that drives people off. But then that, that also makes people rear up and have an opinion. And in that case, it's job done, isn't it? Yeah, so there's an attention-seeking element to, to being a boxer. And I think people have characters. I suppose Joshua's got that kind of, you know, sculpted physique character, but also that kind of relatively respectful, well-spoken guy to a certain extent. And there's, he's got the counterpoint of Dillian White, so it becomes like a pantomime cast to a certain extent. But Which, I'd be with... interested to know, I mean, the thing about Joshua, I'm not sure if he's not losing his way a bit in terms of his personality and if he's becoming a bit too manicured. I think mm. I'm not sure that we're seeing the AJ that people did fall in love with. And now I think we see the brand. Yeah. And you think that impacts and that, that translates to the boxing, does it as well, potentially, do, do you feel? Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, I think the thing is with the boxing, I think what I think it's, it's, it's a tough one, actually, when you look at that, because they're a little bit across purposes. I think in the boxing, what we saw in the Ruiz rematch, certainly, is he, he's going to have to do what he has to win. Mm. And that means possibly winning ugly, where I can't see him getting ugly in terms of being a bad guy. Yeah. And, and, and he's not revealing or necessarily interesting enough now to be a good guy. So, but, but where he's become this brand, I mean, when you, when you look at these brands, when you look at someone like him or Roger Federer, you know, someone who is the face of a lot of different um, mm. companies. Quite distant. Yeah. yeah I mean, do, do, I'm not sure you see a personality. You just see this a symbol of excellence. Mm. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very simple, easily accessible symbol of, of excellence. But you wonder with people like Joshua, and it goes back to the book Road to Nowhere and the book that you're coming out next year, Damage, and you sort of wonder why would you continue in, in such a brutal, unforgiving sport? You know, albeit he's probably not had as, as much sustained damage as, as other boxers, but in that Rui's first fight and other fights, he's Klitschko fight off the top of my head, even Povetkin hit him a couple of times. You think, why do you need it? You know, why risk that, that, that grey matter? Well, of course, there was that huge debate and it went massive in the, in the tabloids about how they said that Robin McCracken allowed him to box on with a concussion. Mm. And obviously, well, that's the sport. You know, if if and I spoke to Chris Nowitzki about this in Boston, you know, who's one of the leading minds behind the whole concussion crisis. And Chris says, you know, the very the very fact 
that a 10 count is part of the rules allows people to box with a concussion because you've yeah. got 10, 10 seconds to get your act back together, but you still might have a concussion. So it kind mm. of is written into the rules that you are allowed to box with a concussion. We just call it buzz, don't we? So it's, it sort of yeah. softens it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. terminology. So, so yeah. I remember reading the back page of The Sun when they were saying when people were trying to throw Rob McCracken under a bus saying he allowed him to box him with a concussion well I mean I couldn't prove it but I bet he let Carl Froch box him with a concussion mm. at least once certainly when you think of that Groves knockdown in the first fight um, you know I'm sure Carl was was I'd be <laughs> wouldn't put my house on it but I'm sure he was probably pretty, pretty concussed after that first Groves knockdown and he fought the rest of the fight through the through the fight. Yeah. When you read the literature around it and you read and you watch films like Concussion with Will Smith based on the, the doctor who kind of founded the, the issue in the NFL. And I remember going to speak to the RFU in Twickenham when I lived there in 2012 about potentially doing a piece with them about what they were doing to compact, uh, to combat CTE, which I think is pronounced chronic traumatic encephalopathy, but forgive me. Encephalopathy. If, uh, encephalopathy there you go encephalopathy um but he it it, it sort of rung true that actually when you look at it we shouldn't really get hit in the head too much that's the the i guess the reality of it and actually your body's pretty durable but your head isn't yeah i mean that's it i mean i think it's it's about for boxing you know and this is kind of one of the reasons why i've written the book damage it's um it's it's about for for a fighter to have the knowledge of and and the trainer to have the knowledge of of being very open or understanding of how much abuse they've taken through the amateur days and professional days and through sparring and everything else because I think we all do have within us some sort of black box where every time you get hit it drains the reserve and mm. you know I think I can I can probably name you about ten guys that I sparred. Um, more than a hundred rounds with. So obviously even then I'm thinking 10 guys have spied a hundred rounds. That's a thousand rounds. I wasn't very good. So I got yeah. hit at least six times around. So that means I've been hitting the head 6,000 times. I had a handful of fights sparred with probably another 50 guys on top of that. Um, so I've probably been hit more than 10,000 times. Yeah. Um, you know, is that great? You know, no. And there was, there was periods maybe in the aftermath of my divorce where I was getting a little bit ragey and I, I started to think, geez, is this, mm. is this from boxing? Mm. And, or is it, you know, and then when I was depressed, I was like, geez, well, this, is this from boxing? Yeah. Or lack of sleep. We talked about as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. that, yeah. So, so there's yeah. loads of things that all feed into it of what, what it could be. And, yes. um, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, head trauma and people don't link or haven't linked head trauma to depression, to anxiety and stuff, the stuff that, that it is now being linked to. But I still don't think there's that level of education within boxing where people think that, you know, if you get hit in the head, you'll, or you'll wind up, and I'll put this in inverted commas, punchy, where you'll mm. be slurring your words, maybe walking a little bit unsteadily, and you might develop tremors. Um, I still think there's a lack of knowledge about what it actually does to the brain and how it can affect moods, depression, yeah. um, you know, or, or impulsivity. Um, all that kind of stuff as well. Not to mention the links to Parkinson's, dementia, and Alzheimer's. 
No, we're seeing a lot of that in football, particularly with the, the older, older footballers that would have played with balls that, that filled up with water. And I remember playing and, and feeling that buzzed feeling after heading the ball. And when I've sort of developed in my late teens, got a little bit taller and, and less sort of well-balanced, I used to rely on quite heading the ball as one of my imports to the team. And actually one of the, the I suppose, retrospect, the lucky things I always lamented was not being able to play more sport due to sports journalism because you work weekends and evenings. But actually it's probably, in relatively terms, it, it saved me heading the ball a lot, getting hit if I was going to play well, rugby or whatever more than, than I did. It's one of the things that's put me into a massive quandary as a dad now because my son who plays football, you know, mm. the, I'll see a big kick go up and he's at the back. Yes. And yeah. I think I think part of me thinks, go on, son, get under it, get your head on it. <laughs> yeah. And then the other part of me that's been written a book on brain injuries thinks, God, son, just let it bounce, take the sting out of it and just take a touch. Yes. So, I mean, you... I'm literally torn between, yeah. I can feel me myself split in two one side saying, go on, son, be brave, get your head on it. And the other side thinking, oh, just, just you know, let someone else get it or just let it's it back. All, it's always that balance in life. You know, you're going you're gonna to die anyway, so you have to live in the, in the meantime. But it's what quality of life you're going to have later on and what the risk and reward is, isn't it? That's the kind of balance you're always trying to make. And I think when you have kids, it's suddenly, it becomes different. It's certainly, in terms of, I imagine, not many boxers I know want to encourage their kids to, to follow in their footsteps and box professionally, at least, anyway, once they've maybe yeah. made, I mean, made a little bit of money. You know, there's a lot in that, you know, in the book. It's it's not about the acute injuries, the stuff that happens on fight night. You, you're Michael Watson's, you Gerald McClellan's, you Spencer Oliver's. It's about the chronic damage and the lasting damage. And so it's not about the deaths on fight night. It's about the slow deaths that come that sort of wipe away 40 years of people's lives afterwards. When you mm. look at someone like the, the Moyer brothers, Denny and Phil up in Oregon, who were basically in nursing homes from the mid from their mid forties onwards, wow. and they, were, they ended up being looked after by their by their parents, by their wow. siblings, by their children, and then by their grandchildren. Yeah, ter- terrible, so tragic, tragic story. I wanted to quickly touch upon um, Tris because you've been you've, you've done two great podcasts, so <laughs> I'll I'll let you go in a second. But just the the the, um, the structure, the discipline that you got from boxing and the CrossFit that you do now and, and how, how you actually do detail your life. You do a serious amount of training and you're trying to be productive, do boxing life stories and the other content that you work on. How do you, how do you structure it all? Yeah, well, I think that, that, so the backbone, probably the thing that's changed the most since probably just before my 40s was dialing in my nutrition and my sleep. Um, mm. As we've spoken about before, I'm a big fan of Matthew Walker, the sleep diplomat. Uh, his podcast on Joe Rogan really sort of changed my outlook about sleep and recovery. So, mm. so those are sort of two key things I need so, to keep on top of. Do you have a sleep sort of etiquette routine that you do in the evenings then to in a, a time, uh, time of bed? Or is it just generally yes, looking to get a certain yes. amount of sleep? No. So, you know, the, the, by, by about nine o'clock, uh, when I start to think about winding down for bed about 10, 1030, I will start to I'll knock the volume down on the TV a little bit. I will dim some lights. Uh, mm. I'll turn off one of the dining room lights so it's a bit darker. So then you just start gradually preparing yourself for sleep. Um, and then, um, and then stay off the phone. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the phone stays downstairs now. And that's a key thing. Um, and that gives me another hour in the morning where I'm not getting up and thinking, Oh, I need to start scrolling straight away. Mm. So that's a key thing. And then I think the other things is in terms of, I mentioned briefly a divorce. I had a, an absolutely horrendous divorce, which really did change my life. And that is with, with the mother of my two children mm. and it changed everything. And I needed to find a balance of where I could find some happiness because for the longest period of time, I would only be happy if I had my children. Mm. And so when I didn't have my children, which was a lot of the time, I couldn't be happy. So I needed to find the things that made me happy. 
um, and I needed to put my time and energy into that. And basically, I, I sort of came up with, I think, five things. One is boxing and work. Um, another one is my, my girlfriend, Jo. Mm. Uh, sorry, my fiance and wife-to-be. Fingers crossed for, <laughs> fingers crossed yeah. for August. Yes. Um, the other thing is my three dogs, two rescues and, and a beautiful Frenchie pug cross. Uh, and then I've got my kids, obviously, still, and my training. And those are my five things. So my work and my boxing, Joe, um, the kids, uh, the dogs, and my training. And I think as long as I can tick those boxes and, and, and not neglect one of them, then I will be happy. And I think that's, that's the, the key thing in my life now. So if I go, so say, I, say BT want me to go and work for 10 days in the States. Yeah. Then, and, and I've got to do the, the interviews with Fury and Wilder. Then I know, obviously, I'm not going to be seeing the dogs. I'm not going to be seeing the kids. I'm not going to be seeing Joe. Hmm. But I will be able to train because I, I still train a lot over there and go to different CrossFit boxes. And, and my work, obviously, that all that itch will be scratched. So, so you're trying to hit, hit, hit a couple of boxes out of five per day, is it? Is that how you do it rather than try and do all five in, in one? Yes. So, and obviously where there's a deficit then, then when I get back, I can top up the other boxes. Hmm. So then work will go on the back burner for a week or two while I spend more time with Joe, the kids and the dogs. And and that's just the way it is. And and it's about being able to juggle those or, or keep those test tubes as full as possible. So I can't keep them all full at 100%. Hmm. But the idea is that maybe after a, after a month, then they might all be filled about 70% of the way up. Hmm. And how, how many how many hours a day do you dedicate to CrossFit or how many hours a week? Um, well, right now in lockdown, a damn sight more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, so right now I'm getting out and I'm cycling or running in the morning generally. And Joe's using our home gym in the garage and then I'm training in the afternoon and I'll do. So generally uh, it's, it's probably in total a couple of hours a day. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, it, and that's all mixed that, up with that, that's gymnastics, weightlifting, running, yeah. cycling, the whole lot. And then you can switch from that into work mode. Can you quickly get to your office, your home office or whatever and, and do, do stuff there and be productive? Yeah, so I've got a busy day today. I'm interviewing David Hay, Tony Bellew and Andy Lee today. Blimey. Um, and so, yeah, I'm in, in and out of interviews today. But, yeah, that's all fine. And that'll be three, that'll be three editions of Boxing Life Stories, will it, to come? Um, no, that, so Andy Lee's Boxing Life Stories, uh, Bellew and Hay is stuff I'm doing for uh, Ring's website. Ah, okay, fantastic. So written pieces. Yes, yeah. written pieces. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I, I work from home and, and, you know, it's one of those things where um, – Obviously, I was the editor of Boxing News from 2010. Mm. I then owned my own gym, and now I'm freelancing. It's one of those things where if I don't freelance and if I'm not disciplined with it, then I'm going to be back stacking shelves at a supermarket. So, mm. yeah, no. <laughs> so that's motivation to keep the life that I've got by, by working hard and making sure that even if I don't fancy, I've still got to do the work. Yeah, good for you. It seems like you've definitely found a good good balance. That's an interesting way of approaching it because I think it sometimes is – and also you, you then – a cognizant of how you're progressing and what boxes in life you're actually doing because sometimes you can be a bit haphazard as you as you wander through it like saying you can jump on one thing and go too heavy on that and then other things uh come undone but tris i really really appreciate your time i'll let you go and uh no get worries, ready for your interviews mate it's been fantastic and i, I recommend road to nowhere to anyone that that is a boxing fan or indeed just a kind of sports fan i think it crosses over i think that perception is a real insight into the sport as well and and why it raises such conflicts in us that it's so inspiring and, and, and glorious in moments, but so kind of um, sorrowful in, in other times. But Tris, yeah, thank you for your, your time, my man, and keep it's in been touch. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Ed. I appreciate it. Good man. Speak to you soon. Take care. 
So there we have it, Tris Dixon, The Road to Nowhere. Finished that book last night. Look out for damage uh, up and coming. I'm back in the garden now, just filming, uh, filming, recording uh, this outro for the podcast, Sport and Life. If you enjoyed that, guys, really appreciate it. If you could rate it on iTunes, follow Tris on social media, Instagram, where there's a lot of his CrossFit videos, which you can see some dramatic stuff of him swinging around uh, gymnastic crossbars and stuff, which is fantastic. Uh, I won't try and explain what he's doing because I'm not too au fait with it, but it's really impressive. A guy now in his 40s had his birthday the other day. Should have said happy birthday to him. But yeah, he's kind of an intriguing guy and uh, someone who certainly has used his background in boxing and sport to apply discipline and a structure to his life and interesting to get his take on the attention market and the sort of attention seeking that goes on not only in boxing and trash talking to, to garner that sort of publicity, but also across all businesses now and all media is this sense that people all want to get a piece of attention. It's not as uh, funneled as it used to be through traditional mediums of newspaper, TV and radio. The internet's kind of blown it open and it's how you then retain a kind of composure and a, a sort of impartiality perhaps as a journalist in this particular context. Well, Road to Know is a great book. Look forward to reading Damage as well when it comes out next year, although it will be quite an arresting one, I think, given the nature of the title and, uh, and again, alluding to the, the brain damage suffered by boxers and other sports people. Uh, so that's it, guys. Shout out to Bang and Olufsen of Cheltenham, still very much alive through the website. Call them, ring Jason and his team and any problem with your home entertainment, they'll be able to help for sure. Thank you to them for their support of the podcast. And remember, Cytoplan, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N, which is a pretty well-respected supplement company we've been using as a family, spearheaded by my dad, who's actually done consulting work for them. Um, to take supplements to boost our immunity, recommend one called Immunovite, I-M-M-U-N-O-V-Y-T-E. And if you go to Cytoplan, Draper10, capital letters for Draper, my uh, last name, and then 10 will give you a 10% deduction on those supplements to boost immunity, particularly at the moment very relevant in coronavirus lockdown. On that note, I hope you're well. Please uh, stay so. And I hope you're financially secure as well. I wish you all the best of luck with that. And hopefully these podcasts can be a decent accompaniment to everything. Do give me feedback on it. Uh, I'm on social media, Draper 81 Twitter, Ed underscore Draper 81 on Instagram. Just uh, cooking some sausages on the barbecue now, if you can hear that. And um, hopefully have a good weekend, guys. And uh, I'll speak to you again soon. Thank you.